You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Good morning, brethren. Job 39. If you have a Bible, please grab it and open it with me to Job chapter 39, 39th chapter of the book of Job. I often really enjoy sitting next to my wife Karen listening to sermons because she has tremendous insight into God's word. And you know, if, the, if I miss something or the preacher says something I don't understand or doesn't make sense to me, you know, I can lean over and whisper in her ear and she, she often has a really good uh, insight for me and decided it might be better not to do that this morning. But uh, she is here and she gave me permission to, uh, to not sit with her uh, during this message. So um, I uh, just wanted to say, what a, again, what a blessing it is the way the Lord anoints our worship team. We pray for our worship and dance team and that as they lead us before the Lord's throne in worship. And, and almost everything I, I, the Lord put on my heart to say has already been said in one of the songs. So uh, I, I may just draw a few things, uh, a few loose ends together. But uh, thank you, Carl, and the rest of the worship team for, for really seeking the Lord and his anointing in worship. And also really appreciate the way the Lord continues to speak to us uh, prophetically through the members of the body of Christ. And uh, the Lord spoke to us a little, just a little earlier in the service and said that he wanted us to recognize his voice, to listen to his word, uh, to expect to hear God's word speaking to us through the scriptures, through brothers and sisters, through the experiences of our lives. And as I was listening to the Lord saying that uh, to us this morning, I thought, this sounds awfully familiar. Where have I heard this before? Fairly recently. And then it suddenly dawned on me, oh yeah, I heard an anointed sermon from this very spot last Sunday through my brother Carl Dreer. And I thought, um, now Lord, it seems to me like you're kind of repeating yourself. But then I thought about that a little bit and I remember that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance the things that I've said to you. And so I think this is a direct application of that scripture because I don't think I've done it yet. You know, I heard a good sermon last Sunday, but I haven't really changed my life. And, and so the Lord brought uh, to my remembrance and to our remembrance this morning through what our sister shared prophetically. And I really uh, I honor the Lord and appreciate the way he does that, including uh, re referring to the scripture in John 10 that Carl preached about last Sunday about Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So thank you, Lord, for reminding us and uh, making sure we're listening, because sometimes we're not. One of the things that Carl mentioned in, in, in Job chapter 33, where we were, he was preaching last week, was that um, the, it says that the Lord is speaking, but sometimes people don't hear it. Don't hear it. Sometimes they're, they're not paying attention, they're not listening. And uh, how many times, Lord, God doesn't ever stop speaking, but we often stop listening, and Carl warned us against falling into that error. And it's really a privilege and a joy for me to just be able to spend a little time building on an excellent foundation that my brother laid for us last week uh, in Job chapter 33. I just want to ask you a really simple question. And you can take a minute to think about it. Don't blurt the answer out right away. 
Do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? This is the question that God asks Job in the beginning of Job chapter 39. Do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? And this is really one of many questions that God sort of interrogates Job with, and Dave alluded earlier in the service to the questions that he starts with in chapter 38, which is the beginning of God's long speech, chapters 38 through 41. And uh, out of the whirlwind, uh, in Job chapter 38, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, Job, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So there in chapter 38, the Lord begins a long series of questions, difficult questions, rhetorical questions to Job and to us. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Brethren, the course of our lives is largely determined by the answers that we give to some important questions. What course of study will you pursue? What job will you take? Where will you live? Whom will you marry? Many important questions that, that we face in our lifetime and our answers to those questions determine the course of our lives. And then there are some questions that are even more important than those. And these are the questions that the Lord Jesus asks us. And just as one example, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they responded, well, some say John the Baptist or uh, Elijah or one of the prophets of old, Jeremiah. And then Jesus homes in on them a little bit more directly, and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am. And Simon Peter, we know, had the right answer. So who do you say Jesus is? Not who was he to you years ago when you accepted him necessarily, though that was important. But who is he to you today? Who do you say that Jesus is? Yesterday, in, in, uh, we read Job, Job chapter 38, and he, he opens his line of interrogation. And today we're reading Job, Job chapter 39, and the interrogation continues. And uh, I just wanted to, I wondered if you were ever in a situation in your life where you were on the hot seat. Was there a time when the bright lights were turned on to you and uh, people were asking you questions and maybe you didn't always feel completely prepared? Uh, I was, um, I was an English major in college and I, uh, I did a thesis on a particular 17th, 17th century Christian poet named George Herbert, still one of my, my favorite poets, and um, developed a thesis and I, I presented it on paper and then I had to present it orally before the, uh, the English faculty at the, the school where I went. And um, I vividly remember being in this small room uh, by myself kind of, surrounded in a, by, by a bunch of chairs filled with all the, these English professors peppering me with questions about my subject and revealing how little I really knew despite all the study I thought I had done. I was on the hot seat and uh, Job's on the hot seat and he's being asked a lot of hard questions by the Lord. If God got you alone, which he really does when we worship him and seek him, but um, if, if the Lord was interrogating you about just one subject, if he just wanted to talk to you about one uh, particular topic, what do you think it would be? 
Nikki maybe would ask you about um, justification by faith or soteriology, the, the study of salvation or about church history or something like that. The topic that he picks to grill Job about in chapter 39 is one that maybe I wouldn't have predicted. Animals. I want to ask you some questions, Job, about animals. Why of all the disciplines did God pick animals, at least in this chapter? Why, why zoology? Why not botany or uh, geology or chemistry or, or astronomy? That would be a fascinating one, or, or history. Why did the Lord ask him questions about, zoo, about animals, about zoology? I think this is the amazing thing about God's creation is that no matter what topic you pick, no matter what area you decide to dive into, to delve into, uh, you find it to be infinitely fascinating and intricate and complex and revealing of the glory of God. And so he just picked one here, and it is the subject of animals. One of my favorite hymns is, a, is an old one that some of you may have heard, I'm not sure, but it's called, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. I'm not sure whether we've sung it here or not. But uh, he says, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing streams abroad and built the lofty skies. There's a verse that I particularly love that goes like this. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, and every place that man can be, thou, God, art present there and his, his glory is present in creation and in animals. By the way, do you know the, the time the mountain goats give birth? Uh, Aaron, can I see that picture now? Do you know who these guys are? Who are they? What kind of mountain goats? These are specific. Come on, Scott. <laughs> these are Rocky Mountain goats. Some of you said the right answer. And uh, these are, I took this picture on Mount Evans uh, in Colorado, uh, above 14,000 feet. And uh, I love these guys. Um, this is a mated pair, I believe. Uh, and I was able to observe them. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. A, an amazing combination of power and grace in these Rocky Mountain goats. And uh, I think that uh, the male is the one with the in, toward the center with the longer, longer horns. But um, so, so yeah, this really is a message about mountain goats today. And um, I know you're probably thinking to yourself, another sermon about mountain goats? I've heard so many sermons about mountain goats already. Well, you can take the notes and put them on your shelf with all the other messages about mountain goats. Because, but actually, I'm going to talk about a couple of other things besides mountain, besides mountain goats. Because he goes on, and after asking about the mountain goats, and he says, uh, do you observe the calving of the deer? Verse 2 of Job chapter 39. I hope you are with me in Job 39. Can you count the months that they, the deer fulfill, or do you know the time that they give birth? They kneel down. They bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong. They grow up in the open field. They leave them and do not return to them to their parents. Hey, Job, who sent out the wild goat? Uh, excuse me, who said, oh, Job, who set, I jumped a verse, who, who, set, who set the wild donkey free and who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? 
to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. Job, verse 9, will the wild ox consent to serve you, or will he spend, it, spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him, because his strength is great, and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him, that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? What about the ostriches? The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the plumage and pinion of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth, and she warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may, tr may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is not concerned. Why? Because God has made her forget wisdom, and he's not given her a share of understanding. That's interesting, one animal that doesn't have wisdom. She, he's, he's, he's made her forget understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and rider. Do you know why ostriches can laugh at a horse and a rider? Because the fastest racehorse cannot keep up with an ostrich at full sprint. Pretty amazing. Speaking of horses, hey Job, verse 19, do you give the horse his, his mane? Do you make him, do you give, give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley. He rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, and he sensed the battle from sensed the battle from afar, and the thunder of the captains in the war cry. Job, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliffs he dwells and lodges, upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food, his eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Wow. The Lord has really crushed Job, flattened him really, with a, with a whole lot of rhetorical questions here in this passage. 17, in fact, uh, if you count them up, 17 questions that he asks of Job, and they all have to do with animals, and the answer to all of them, all of these rhetorical questions is no. No, I wasn't there. No, I don't know. No, these wild animals don't serve me. No, I haven't observed the calving of the deer. The answer to every question that God asks Job, all, every rhetorical question is essentially no. What did Job do to deserve this humiliation? To, get at, to, to be in a position where he gets asked all of these really hard, unanswerable questions. Well, if you read through chapters 3 through 37, before God finally gets a chance to speak, you hear that Job said some pretty off-kilter things. You know, in the midst of his fear and his pain and his doubt and his confusion, 
He said a lot of things about the Lord that weren't necessarily true, and his companions, according to God, also did not, did not speak rightly of him. Job had some things right they didn't, they didn't have, according to the Lord's assessment. But these are a lot of the questions that we as human beings ask in our darkness, in our doubt, in our ignorance, and in our confusion. And uh, the Lord listens, and the, but, but the Lord has an answer, and he, uh, he's ready to, uh, to respond. And now in chapters 38 through 41, the Lord finally reveals to Job, Job's own wisdom, or lack thereof. He asks him a series of highly de detailed questions about eight animals. And they are mountain goat, deer, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, and the eagle. Seven of the eight animals are wild. Which one is domesticated? Thank you, the horse. The horse is not domesticated, all the others. But all eight, including the horse, have one thing in common, and that is they were around before Job. If you read the, 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 uh, first, the days five and six in the Genesis creation account in, in Genesis chapter one, you'll see that the Lord started um, in the waters and he said, let the waters teem with life. And then he gave, uh, the, went to the heavens, the birds of the air, and then finally the terrestrial creatures. And then after he was done with all of that, then came man, then came mankind. So Job, you weren't there to see any of this. So uh, this is the, this, the only real approach to me and the only real approach to wisdom is one of utter humility. And that's really the conclusion that Job reaches in chapter 40. Just want to read a couple of verses with you in 40, chapter, chapter 40, verse 3. The Lord answers Job, excuse me, Job answers the Lord and he says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. God asked him, will you contend with the, with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job says, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? He's come to a place, finally, of complete humility, and this is the beginning of wisdom. These chapters, 38 through 41, are probably the greatest, sort, uh, greatest uh, collection of rhetorical questions ever asked. And they're asked of Job, they're asked of mankind, they're asked of us. And a lot of them are right here in, in chapter 39. And uh, he's asking him how much he knows about just one aspect of the God's glorious creation. He could have asked him about any other discipline, any other field of study, but instead he picks zoology, he picks animals. How much do you really know, Job? Like human beings, each animal species is unique uh, each is fascinating in its own right, and each one, to, to some small degree, reflects a little bit of the glory of God. Just want to go over a couple of the questions that God asks Job about the animals, starting in the beginning of chapter 39. He says, do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth, or do you observe the calving of the deer? By the way, just a footnote about the calving of the deer. The Lord specifically addresses this in Psalm 29, verse 9. You can check that later, or maybe write it, write it down. But Psalm 29, verse 9, it says that the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf. All of these things happen not by Job's instigation, but it's the voice of the Lord that makes the deer to calf. And he, he asks Job if he, can, if he can count the months 
that they fulfill, how long is their gestation. He asks them if he's observed them giving birth and, uh, and, 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 and rearing their young. And what, what all of this is, of course, is a reference to the, to the wonder and the marvel of sexual reproduction and uh, the, the, the carrying of young and the raising of young and, uh, of course, for humans, the raising of children. And uh, it's just one aspect of God's creation that, that Job is questioned about by the Lord. And then he goes on and asks him uh, some questions about a couple of other things. He says, for example, let's talk about the wild donkey. Let's talk about the wild ox. Do they serve you, Job? Do they harrow the valleys after you? No, they're wild. They're not connected to you. Human beings, including you and me, tend to have a very anthropocentric view of the universe. That is, we see man in the center and everything is being related to us and it's significant only to the degree that it's useful to us. And uh, of course, God has given us a, a, a prime position in creation, but everything doesn't revolve around me. There are some things that God did just because he wanted to. In, the, in Revelation chapter four, uh, John has, sees in, in, in part of the vision of heaven a great paean of praise being offered up to the Lord. And, and, and John said, here's, here's the angelic being saying, you are worthy, O Lord. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things for your pleasure. John, Revelation 4.11, you have created all things they, they, for your pleasure and according to your will. And by your will, they existed and were created. You alone are worthy, O Lord. So it doesn't all revolve around us. There are parts of God's creation that we don't even know yet. A lot of things about God's creation. A lot of his marvels that he delights in, even though they have not yet necessarily been revealed to man. Because he created it all for his pleasure and according to his will. I love the donkey. I don't know if you like the donkey in chapters, in, in verses 5 and following. God set the wild donkey free, and he, uh, he loosed the bonds of the swift donkey. God gave him the wilderness as a home in the salt land. The donkey, the wild donkey, scorns the tumult of the city. He explores the mountains. This is pretty cool to me. If I could be any of these guys, I think I'd be the wild donkey. I'd like to, God gives us the wilderness. He, he gives us the ability to explore the mountains. And, uh, with or without Job's knowledge or, or assent. What about the horse? He's also pretty cool. They're all, they're all really cool. But um, one thing about, about uh, the wild donkey that really strikes me is that I think that in addition to the wild donkey, the Lord has given nature and creation to us and he, he wants us to explore. And if I could say two words to myself and to you, you, you guys uh, this morning, two of those words might be, get outside, get outside. Um, there's a, it's important for us to, you know, we spend all, almost all of our lives inside little cubes that are called rooms, inside of slightly, slightly bigger cubes that are called buildings. And we seldom uh, see the, the heavenly bodies, the moon and the stars. We seldom feel the dirt and the, and the grass under our feet. And, and that's to our, to our loss. I read an article recently in a, a, a publication of the University of Pennsylvania, the Morris Arboretum, and it was, it was talking about what's called nature's prescription. 
And they asked the question, what is nature's prescription? Nature's prescription, uh, according to the University of Pennsylvania, um, is changing the wellness landscape um, uh, and the way we think in the United States and internationally, and right here at the University of Pennsylvania. They say looking to um, time spent in natural environments is an alternative way uh, to manage stress and to improve overall health and well-being. It's a modern movement and a reminder of what has been known by civilizations throughout history. Clinical current studies demonstrate that getting outside, even for increments of only five to 20 minutes, can reduce stress and anxiety levels, can improve cognitive ability and attention span, and can improve our overall sense of happiness. We spend almost all of our time surrounded by glass and steel and brick and asphalt and uh, staring, as has been mentioned already in the service, at tiny little electronic screens. And I know that we need, we need those things to a degree, but I think we also need to get outside and, and be like the wild donkey and explore the wilderness that God has given to us. You don't necessarily have to go to the wilderness. You can step out on your balcony if, if that's all you have and feel the breeze and look at a green tree and see the moon overhead at night. So get outside, brothers and sisters. The ostrich, she flaps her wings joyously with the pinion and plumage of love. It's pretty cool. And she's foolish. For some reason, known only to God, he didn't give her a share of wisdom. Uh, total, totally dumb animal, doesn't know how to take care of her young, and yet she can laugh at the horse and rider. My wife had a, a little dog named Andre, who is practically as dumb as an ostrich, and yet very cute, and they loved each other. So I know what dumb animals are like, I mean really stupid animals. But the ostrich, for some reason, the Lord didn't give her a share of wisdom as he did to the others. But each of them reflects God's glory in a certain way. And um, I especially love the horse. I like his might, his majesty. Um, oh, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Um, the horse, Job didn't give him his might. He didn't clothe his neck with a mane. Um, his snorting is terrible. He rejoices in his strength. He laughs at fear. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Life is tough. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of questions and unanswered problems in our lives. And we know that. That's what this book is all about, wrestling with those issues. But that's not the whole story of God's word, and that's not the whole story of the book of Job, because hidden in the word of God also is tremendous laughter and tremendous joy and tremendous rejoicing. The Lord has not created us just for grief and woe. We live in a period now when we have to deal with some of these things, but that's not God's ultimate purpose for us. I mean, he wants us to be more like the, the horse with, with laughter and with joy and with rejoicing. The horse isn't the only animal that's filled with joy. Did you know that the mountains are filled with joy and the trees clap their hands? Why are you looking at me funny? Okay, for you skeptics, Isaiah chapter 55. Flip with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 55. The prophet has an image of that time when God's people will be set free 
And Paul the Apostle talks about this in Romans chapter 8 also. He says that the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but in hope that, that the creation itself will be set free from, its, from futility into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is what we've been called to. And this is the way Isaiah describes it. Paul's vision, Isaiah's vision, Isaiah 55, verse 12. He says, you will go out with joy, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Hallelujah. My opinion, Christians mope around too much. Why the long face? We know that there's pain and suffering in the world, but there's also great joy and great rejoicing, and, and it's so easy to complain and to get bogged down with all the worries of life. Uh, Carl was talking about the seed sown in the, in, the, in the soil and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things choke the word. Let's not get bogged down in, completely in the worries and in the pains of this life because God has woven into the very fabric of his creation joy and life and vitality and vigor. And it's not all about woe. It's not all about sadness. The greatest source of joy, the ultimate source of joy, the Lord Jesus himself. It says in Psalm 45, and the writer to the Hebrews repeats in Hebrews chapter 1, that the Lord anointed him with the spirit of joy, with the spirit of gladness, the oil of joy and gladness, more than all of his, other, all of his companions. True, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet, he was also a man of great joy. Do you know why it was, according to Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus endured the cross? He did it for the joy set before him. That's his destiny. That's our destiny in Christ. God has set joy before us. And, and this book of Job, although wrought with suffering, is also fraught with joy. Like Philippians, like many passages of scripture, suffering and joy often go hand in hand, and, and the one precedes the other. A couple of other comments about a couple of the animals. Um, the hawk. Hey, Job. Verse 26, is it by your understanding that the, horse, that the hawk soars, stretching out his wings toward the south? What's this about, stretching out his wings toward the south? What the Lord is alluding to here, of course, is the whole um, marvel and wonder of migration. Every year, all across the face of the planet we live, uh, tens of millions of animals migrate tremendous distances. Wildebeests migrate across the plains of East Africa. And, Caribou migrate across the northern tier. Monarch butterflies migrate right over us, going all the way from Canada to Mexico every year. And uh, those are just a few. The longest distance migrant, the Arctic tern, a tiny and yet beautiful bird uh, that flies all the way from one pole to the other twice every year. That's migration. That is some distance. And the hawks, Boy, there is something else too. And, and, and Job probably knew exactly what God was talking about here because he lived in the Middle East and that's a land where there's tremendous hawk migration visible. Uh, in the southern tip of Israel, there's a town called Elat and Elat is, is the scene of one of the great spectacles of hawk migration anywhere on the planet. It's not the, other, the only one. 
There's another one just a couple of um, hours away from here. Uh, it's called Cape May, New Jersey. And if you have a free Saturday in October or November, give me a call and we'll watch the hawks migrating over Cape May, New Jersey. Not as great as Elat, but still, still quite a spectacle. The miracles that God has wrote, he's already talked about the miracle of child rearing and the, and the bringing up of young, and, and here's the miracle of migration, just a couple of the things that the Lord um, re causes us to rejoice in. What about the eagle? Hey, Job, verse uh, 27, is it your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? We know the idea of eagles mounting up because one of our favorite verses in the scriptures, for some of us anyway, is, is Isaiah 40, chapter, 30, chapter 40, verse 31. It says, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. There's actually two ways, some of you know this, but there are two ways physically that eagles mount up. By the way, the eagles that Job saw were not the bald eagles that we think of with the white head and the white tail, only in North America. They were almost certainly golden eagles, which are on many continents. And the, the, the golden eagles are huge birds, wingspan of between seven and eight feet uh, in wingspan. And, uh, and the, the way that they, one of the ways that they mount up, for example, after they've caught prey on the ground, is by heavy flapping. And it's a lot of work. It's a big bird and carrying prey high up into the air. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of heavy flapping. So they mount up that way. But there's another trick. Another way the eagles have of mounting up, and that is that after they reach a certain elevation in the middle airs, especially true on, on warm, sunny afternoons, there's a phenomenon called the thermals, and the thermals are huge pockets of warm air that rise up off the surface of the ground and, and just travel upward. And what a golden eagle will do is, is set his wings and stop flapping and just spiral effortlessly upward, higher and higher, sometimes so high you can't even see them. They're just like little specks way up high in the sky. And of course, that's a, that's a picture and a metaphor for us of waiting on the Lord, mounting up, partly maybe through human effort, but even better by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's at my command, Job, that the eagles do that. Pretty cool. Why does the Lord almost humiliate Job with these 17 rhetorical questions. Is he just trying to make him look bad, trying to make him squirm, uh, trying to make him feel bad and trying to put him down? I think the real reason is that the Lord wants Job to put himself in his own proper perspective. Job and especially some of the other speakers in this book have gotten a little too big for their britches and they need to be shrunken down to size. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Ames Room. There's a phenomenon called the Ames Room that was invented by uh, an ophthalmologist around the 1940s here in America. And uh, it was an experiment. There's a copy of the Ames Room right down this parkway from us at the Franklin Institute. But the way the Ames Room works, it's really fascinating. Um, it's an actual physical room, but it's constructed with the way the angles and the geometric shapes in the room are constructed is if someone is standing in one corner of the room and then walks to the other corner of the room, they shrink magically before your very eyes and get smaller and smaller. The same person in the same time frame, you can see them getting smaller. It all depends on our perspective, how big we see things. And the Apostle Paul has his own Ames room, and it's in Romans chapter 12. 
The verse that most of us are most familiar with in Romans 12 is probably verse 2, which many of you can, can quote along with me. It says, to, to, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We know Romans 12, 2. You know what Romans 12, 3 says? Paul goes on and he says this, through the grace of God given to me, I say to you that each, to each one, one of you, that you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. We see ourselves in the center of the universe. We think of ourselves much more highly than we ought to think. And, Saul, and, and Paul says, don't do that. Look at the Ames room. Think of yourself at, as being in the proper size and the pro proper perspective. If you are on the throne of your life right now, then everything you view is all skewed. It's all messed up perspectives. Everything is the wrong size and the wrong shape. If I kick myself off the throne of my life and squarely sit Jesus there, everything falls into its proper perspective and proper proportion, and, and I see things truly the way they really are. And that's what Job is experiencing. That's what God is trying to get Job to do, and, and, and I think us also to do. Turn with me to one other scripture, if you will. It's Psalm 104, the 104th Psalm, Psalm 104, just for a couple of minutes. I'm going to look at Psalm 104. This is uh, a great psalm about God's creation and the way his glory is displayed uh, in the creatures that he has made. And uh, it's a tre tre tremendous psalm. And, and Psalm 104, in a lot of ways, parallels Job chapter 39. Psalm 104 about the munificence of God his bounty, his generosity, uh, his, the, uh, everything in his creation is laden and dripping with God's glory, God's love and his power and his grace, the munificence of God, Psalm 104, uh, verse 10. Psalm 104, verse 10. God sends forth springs in the valley. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkey quenches his thirst. Besides them, the birds of the, of the heavens dwell, and they lift up their voices among the branches. Remember our friend, the wild donkey? He gets his drink from the Lord. Drop, drop down to verse 18, Psalm 104, verse 18. The high mountains are for the wild goats. This really is a sermon about mountain goats. You thought I was kidding, huh? The wild, they're for the wild goats. And also, there's another creature up there. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim. Uh, verse 18 of Psalm 104. Some of you may not be familiar with Shephanim, uh, but what they are is a, a small mammal that lives only on the mountains in the Middle East. Uh, biologists call it the, the rock hyrax. It's about the size of a, a woodchuck, a groundhog. And they live only in the Mideast and only on high mountains. And uh, the Lord gave the, the high mountains not only to the, to the goats, the mountain goats, but also to the Shephanim. And uh, another creature that displays his wisdom, his glory. And the Shephanim are also mentioned in passing in, at the end of Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, verse 26, it says that the, the Shephanim are not a mighty folk, but they make their houses in the rocks. So they're not strong, but they're smart. And what they do is they, they make the houses in the rocks 
up in the high mountains. Why? Because circling overhead are what? The, the raptors, the hawks and the eagles, and they're ready. They're looking for breakfast, and the Shephanim keep an eye to the sky, and they live in the rocks so that they can dash in and be safe. Amazing how God's wisdom is displayed in everything, every creature he made. I've never seen Shephanim. I've never been to the Middle East. I'd love to go someday. But, but I have seen the South American equivalent of Shephanim, which is probably the cutest creature God ever made, and uh, that at least that I've seen. And it's called a viscacha. And the viscacha is like a huge roly-poly rabbit that lives high in the Andes. And it's, I think, the South, South American uh, Shephanim. And the viscacha, <clears throat> high in the Andes, where it's bitterly cold at night, they burrow down deep into their burrows. But then when the sun comes up uh, at a high elevations, things get warm very, very quickly. So the viscacha comes and sits in the mouth of his burrow, and he <clears throat> just warms up in the sun. And, if, and as he sits still in the sun, as, as you would do if you sit in the sun for a long time, he starts to get drowsy. And you can see their eyes closing and their heads drooping down. And uh, they take a little snooze there in the sun at the mouth of their burrows. And yet, they can't snooze for long because they've got to be wary because they're wise and they make their, their, their houses in the rocks to be, to be free of uh, predation. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Verse 28 of Psalm 104. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. What a beautiful picture of God's creation. Every creature, he just opens his hand and they are satisfied with good. This is the message of Job 39, the message of Psalm 104. God cares, God provides, even in the midst of struggle and a tough life and suffering. And, and, and the psalmist concludes uh, in verse 33 of Psalm 104, verse 33. He says, I will sing for joy as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. There's strife in this life and there's pain and there's sorrow and there are unanswered questions. There's weeping. Psalm 30, verse 6, I think. Psalm 30 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but a shout of joy, a shout of joy comes in the morning. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for speaking your word to us through your many-membered body. Lord, thank you for the prophetic word that you spoke to us early in this service about um, recognizing your voice, listening for it, expecting you to speak to us. Lord, through a brother or sister, through the scriptures, through the experiences of our lives, thank you for, for uh, reminding us, Lord, of the, the very words you spoke to us last Sunday through our brother Carl and through um, Job chapter 33. Lord, we want to thank you for uh, times of humbling in our lives, Lord, like Job, we get too big for our britches, Lord, and we need you to help us to, put, to, to be in the proper perspective. Lord, show us um, what you're doing in our lives, where, where we really are before you. And um, Lord, we just want to thank you for your joy, 
Lord, we ask you to help us to rejoice in you. Lord, even in the midst of, and in the face of struggle and trial and pain, Lord, as for me, I will be glad in the Lord.